Good morning. I'm glad we can be here today. It's been a weird morning, like with the like tornadoes and stuff, and it's weird um, to come to church in that. I'm glad we can be here today uh, together. And um, today we're finishing up our teaching series that we've been in uh, throughout Lent uh, that we've entitled Disordered Love. And I want you to know that as we've gone through this series, this term, Disordered Love, has become more and more powerful for me for a lot of reasons, and I hope that uh, maybe it has for many of us. Uh, part of it is because it shows the diversity of the church, like how big the church is, and it reminds us of that, but it also um, reminds us uh, of what we're truly about. And by what I mean by the diversity of it, this is a, a term that was coined um, to describe sin by an African bishop 1,600 years ago, and I think it's It's such an illuminating way of looking at sin for every single one of us today, 1,600 years later in a different continent that he didn't know existed at the time. You think about that. Um, And he said that sin at its core, and this is part of what's so critical for us to remember, that sin at its core is not about actions and rules and breaking rules. And at its worst, and it often does this, the church reverts to that, to kind of know it and do it discipleship, right? These are the rules, and this is what the Bible says, and so you're supposed to follow the rules, and here are the rules, and here's the things you're to do, and here's the things you're not supposed to do, and everybody needs to be clear about the rules so that we can be doing things the right way. And so the church becomes like the morality police, running around, making sure, and reminding everybody of when it is you've broken those rules. And it's not that we're supposed to do away with rules, But Augustine reminds us that just knowing rules is a completely inadequate way of understanding discipleship and formation. Right? And I've shared this before, but to me it's a really good practical example from my own life. When it comes to marriage, I know what the rules are. I I know. Alright? I mean, I probably officiated 60, 70 weddings in my life. I've done premarital counseling with couples. It's one of the great joys of my job and what I get to do. I've read the scriptures. I know what the rules are. The rules are very clear. As a Christian husband, I am supposed to seek to, in practical ways that she understands, outserve my wife. The fact is, this week, I just many times am not going to want to do that. Right? Knowing the rule is not enough. Know it and do it discipleship doesn't work. And yet we just keep going back at it, going, well, that's what, know the rules. It doesn't work. Augustine says that it's about how does God change our hearts. It's about disordered love. It's about that if our hearts can be rearranged, that our actions will follow, right? That the core of sin that we see in Genesis 3, as we've been looking at it, is not that there was a rule that Adam and Eve broke. See, if you look at it that way, it's like, there's this fruit, they weren't supposed to eat it, and they disobeyed God, and they ate it, and now there are consequences. Right? It's not how it works, Augustine says. It's not at least at the core of it. That the core was not them breaking a rule. That the core was Adam and Eve looking at it, it says, and they desired to be like God. And Augustine says that's where original sin was. It's in their desire that turned into an action. So Augustine wants to get at how can our hearts be changed, right? Not how can our rules be followed better. Because if you sit there at Lent and go, I'm going to, yeah, I know I've been struggling with this, then I'm going to really follow the rules. It won't work. You won't, it's like a New Year's resolution. It won't last. Because we're too broken. It doesn't get at the core of it. Okay? So I, I, it's just been powerful for me to think about what does it mean, as Augustine writes, for God to reorder our hearts? What does that look like? 
And we've been using this passage to get there. Um, we're going to look at the end of Genesis 3 today, verses 20 through 24, as we continue with this journey of talking about disordered love and repentance through Lent. And this is what it says, starting in verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden a cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the, work, to the tree of life. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would meet us all in this place with your gospel, your good news this morning, to change and maybe even reorder our hearts. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we've been on this journey of examining disordered love. So we talked about the first week, and as it just kind of went over again before, it's important to understand where this begins. That original sin is the desire of Adam and Eve to to play the part of God, to be like God. And what we've invited you to do in this series each and every week is not to sit there and go, oh, that's what happened thousands of years ago. Rather, it's to see that the patterns we see in this sin are the patterns that exist, that are very destructive in all of our lives here today. This isn't just history. This is our story. This is your story. This is my story of what happens. And when you start with the position of the desire to be like God, there's probably... Nothing and no time in history that we have franchised that idea of being able to play God as much as contemporary American culture has, right? Because we live in a world where today we get to decide everything, right? It's like, it's my truth, it's my morality, it's my way of living, it's my value system, it's my marriage, it's how I'm going to raise my kids, it's my values of what's going to be right and wrong. And friends, there is no better definition of playing God than that. As I had someone say to me recently, uh, we were talking about a, uh, kind of a, one of those challenging passages of Scripture from the Bible, and they're like, yeah, I just don't believe that that Scripture passage applies to me. Okay. Wow. If you want to know the textbook definition of playing God, that is it. I'm an enlightened 21st century person. I don't have to pay attention to that. I know better. Look, for, look at our world today. There is no evidence that we know better. But we keep insisting on it. Because this time we're really going to get it right. No, we invited ourselves to say that God has created this creation and he's ordered it to work in a certain way. And therefore we need to ask ourselves the question, God, what is your design for this? What is your design for how we live? What is your design for me and how I'm supposed to come alive and the unique gifts I have and the unique limitations that I have? We looked the next week at, at the effects of sin, we said. And those effects live with us still today as well said that the first thing Adam and Eve did when they ate of the fruit which they weren't supposed to is they start hiding from each other, right? They made clothes for each other, uh, for themselves. They were ashamed. They hide from each other. And again, I'm not certain there's any point in human history where we have been able to do that more effectively than we do today. Think about it in this term. Think about like social media. Think about like Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, any of these things. These things, which have many benefits, and I know they have benefits, and I'm not anti-technology or anything else, but they allow us, among other good things, to promote the idea of an image of our life that is just often simply not true. But it looks great, 
right? Like we can go on a trip that's not even all that wonderful and all that great, but you find the wonderful photo of this great moment where everyone's smiling and getting along and happy and there's this beautiful sunset behind you and things, and you post it and you're going, best vacation ever, right? And probably honestly wasn't. It probably wasn't the greatest vacation that anyone's ever had in history of humanity of all time. But we put it out there because we wanted to go up going, this is my wonderful life and these are my wonderfully successful kids and this is the wonderful loving family unit we have and these are the beautiful smiles that we pay thousands of dollars to an orthodontist to create and this is the, the image that we're stoking and these are how amazing everything is about our amazing life. Raise your hand out there over the internet who's jealous of us. Right? Should they be? Probably not. But you want them to think it, right? We wanted to put it out there of how we live. It's one of the reasons, friends, that small groups are so important. Your D groups are so important. It's not just something that we do. One of the most frightening things you will ever do in your life is to try to be honest in community with people. To not live with the image of how amazing we all are. How perfect we all are. Where people really get to walk with you in your joys and in your triumphs and in your giftedness and in your struggles and in your doubts and in your questions and in how selfish you are and in the things that you say and they see the whole picture and they pray for you and walk with you and love you in the midst of it all. That is one of the most frightening things to let people in. And it is one of the most essential if our lives are going to come alive. That we do. To not live behind this false image. The next thing they do after hiding from, God, from each other is they start hiding from God. And I can tell you in all honesty, I am chief sinner among that. What hiding from God looks like for me most of the time is I say I'm too busy. Right? Oh, I'm so busy. I've got to wake up and I've got like kids and they're running around and they're like asking me for things like breakfast and all this stuff that I've got to like worry about and I don't have time for this. I've got to go to work and I've got meetings, I've got text messages, I've got emails and blah, blah, blah. And I just don't have... Now, we can sit and watch cat videos for 20 minutes and laugh about it, but I just don't have the time to really pray. I just don't have the time to have a healthy devotional life. Well, that is nothing more than hiding from God, right? So we've invited you maybe to, to, using the Psalms and the daily reading of the Psalms throughout Lent to say you were created for a relationship with God. All of us were. And if you seek meaning in anything else, you just keep throwing things at this hole that searches for meaning in us, and you're never going to find what it's about. So you just keep getting these short-term highs. Great grades, dating somebody, having the, uh, your kids do something, having the right job, all these things that kind of create these short-term highs, and then you just kind of have to go on to the next thing. But it doesn't last. It's not what life's truly about. We, life is not meant to be achieved so much as it's meant to be received. And yet we live by achievement all the time. Doesn't give us what we want, but we keep striving to find our place and our identity and our meaning. Then last week we talked about the inability to accept responsibility. And I've appreciated some of the reflections I've got to have with you guys in this, right? That when God shows up and Adam and Eve have eaten, that, that the Lord says to Adam, what have you done? Like, what did you do? Like, there was one rule. Right? Like, what did you do? And Adam says, it wasn't my fault. And then this amazingly weak line, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she tricked me and made me do it. And then God looks at Eve and says, what did you do? And Eve says, the serpent whom you created tricked me and caused me to eat. Honestly, Adam and Eve are sitting there going, God, if we look at what's happened in all honesty, this is all your fault. 
because you made things this way, and so before we get into casting blame, you probably owe us an apology. Because if you hadn't done it this way, then we wouldn't have messed up. So we're ready for you to say you're sorry. We look at our nation. We look at our politics. We look at our families where there's division and people aren't talking to each any, anymore. We look at grades that don't happen. We look at why we didn't get a promotion at work. And we are experts at how the problem lies with someone else. It's their fault that things are this way. It's their fault that I didn't get an A on this. It's their fault that I didn't get the promotion. We are experts at deflecting blame. It is their fault when we look at the problems in this country. And the problems are not with people who vote like us. It has to be with people on the other side. And this week, we're going to look at the final effect of sin. Final effect we see in Genesis 3 in these last verses. And the way I would characterize this, and I would invite us to think about how to live differently, is that this is the idea that when Adam and Eve are kicked out of Eden, when they have to go, as John Steinbeck's great novel talks about, east of Eden, and they leave Eden forever, that there are consequences to that. And part of the inference that we believe is, is that the consequence for this is that we are now on our own. We are now dependent on ourselves. And it comes from roots that are found in the passage we read, right? What God says to Adam and Eve is, now that you go, you're going to have to uh, till the soil and produce fruit from the ground from which you were made, right? One of the things going to be different, Adam and Eve, is you're going to have to find your own way of providing for yourself. No one's going to be handing you like three meals a day. You're going to have to create this on your own. You're going to have to labor. You're going to have to provide for yourself. It is up to you to make the life that you want for yourself. There is nobody else you can depend on except yourself and your hard work and your ingenuity and your skills and your ability to make your life what you want it to look like. And there is a desperate feeling of loneliness when that is the case. There is a desperate feeling of loneliness when that is the case. And all of us have it. It's a part of our DNA. One of the things that we're taught in seminary when you're training for ministry, and this isn't just for like pastors, all of us should do this. Like in, again, in small groups and other places where we're called to care for each other. Is that we're talked, called, taught in seminary about what's called the ministry of presence. What the ministry of presence says is that when people are going through a really hard time, that it's important for us to show up for each other, to be present with each other. Because when you and I go through really hard times, there's this feeling that comes in us of like, oh man, I'm really out here on my own and nobody cares. God doesn't care. I don't even know if God's real. Um, people don't care. I'm really in this and I'm by myself and I've got to find the way out of it. I've got to tough through it. I've got to pick myself up by the bootstraps. I have to make a different way. I can only depend on me. And what the ministry of presence says is that when, when you go through hard times, everybody has that fear, that feeling of being alone that bubbles up inside of us. And they say that it's important for you to show up and be there with folks just to let them know that they're not alone. Right? Now, what you're not supposed to do is talk. Because what you and I want to do as human beings is that we go into situations where people are upset or things are broken and we want to fix it, right? And that's where our really bad theology often comes. Where we look at people and out of desire to fix it or fix the situation go, hey, you know, good news is God won't give you more than you can handle. Or, you know, when God closes the door, he opens the window. Like, terrible stuff that does not help in a situation. But we like to, it makes us feel like we're doing something, right? But there's a powerful part of presence. 
Take, for example, in the book of Job. If any of you have read the book of Job, it's like light reading just to do for fun. Well, in the book of Job, we have one of the best examples, though, of community, of friendship. That when Job starts going through these really hard things, he has three friends that show up in his life. And it says for a week, when his life has collapsed, and he's sitting in ashes repenting, that these three friends show up. And for a solid week, they leave their families, they leave their jobs behind, and they sit with him in silence for a week, sitting in ashes, mourning in sorrow with him for his loss. Now, the problem is, after a week, they start talking and trying to tell him why it is that these things have happened this way. And that's when everything gets messed up. But who of us has friends that for a solid week would just come to us in our need, leave their families, leave their jobs behind, and just sit with us in pain and silence and in prayer? There are not many of us who have friends that would do that. It's an amazing example of community and friendship in a ministry of presence. Because what most of us do, if we either want to fix things, or on the other hand, people who are going through hard times, we like avoid it. Right? It's like, well, I went around him. I didn't want to like make it awkward or remind him of things, so I just kind of didn't say anything. And I just like didn't go around. You're like, that's not helpful either. Right? You gotta show up. You gotta be with people because there's this fear that we're alone. And because we can believe that and because we see that in this passage, we also miss that this passage, while there's a ton of pain that happens in Genesis 3 and a ton of loss from verse 1 to the end, from verse 24, that in verse 21, we get this little ray of beauty and of hope in this chapter. And I want to lift it up to you for the last couple of minutes today, because it's something I'd love you to think about this week. And it defeats the idea that we're alone. And it's this, it's verse 21. And what it says is, is that when Adam and Eve were getting ready to leave the garden in their shame and in their sin and creation broken down and everything that's wrong, it says that God made clothes for them. God made garments of skin, it says, for them to wear, to send them out. And that seems like such a simple thing, we can miss it, right? It's like, oh man, all this stuff is changing. But one of the things that's beautiful about this passage is there's one thing that doesn't change throughout Genesis 3, and it is the constant faithfulness and love of God. It's a big deal that God made clothes for them. Why? Because God didn't design creation to work this way. And I'm not saying any about new proposals that are going in front of session or anything, but God didn't design us where clothes were necessary. He didn't. That is, it says that that is a form of hiding. That's where it was created from. And there's something so beautiful about the fact that when Adam and Eve are in their shame of the things that they have done wrong, that God does not look at them as he would be justified in doing and saying, hey, you made your bed, you've got to lie in it. You've got to figure this out. You're now on your own with the shame and the and having but it says God meets them where they are in their shame and provides in a tangible way for what they are feeling in the moment. Does that make sense? He makes clothes for them to provide for them in a loving way where they are. And my hope for Adam and Eve is that they caught the significance of that. That When they were leaving the garden, there was this sense for them of like, wow, while we have messed up and everything is changing, what God's saying to us here is, we're not by ourselves. That He's going to keep showing up and providing for us when we need it, even when we don't deserve it. Even when we're the ones who mess things up. God doesn't give up on us, and God's love pursues us constantly and shows up in tangible ways. 
Friends, one of the most dangerous things for our lives as Christians is that we miss those moments. We miss the moments where in your life and in my life and in our community where God makes clothes for us. Because it's usually these simple things of where God shows up and we miss it. And it's dangerous when we miss it because we miss hope at that point. Right? God says in the book of Jeremiah through the prophet that one of the chief sins of the people is that they are a forgetful people. They forget things. And when you forget things, when you're forgetful, you're, you don't have hope anymore. And so part of our job in worship is to find ways to remind ourselves of that. Say, hey, you know what? Yeah, we mess things up and our world is broken, but God makes clothes for us all the time. God's always showing up and doing that. That's part of what this table is that we're going to be talking about. Is that this is a sign of the faithfulness of God in the midst of our brokenness. And so what it means is you and I have got to become really good storytellers about how God has made clothes for us as a community. We have to do a really good job of remembering of how God has shown up in our really painful, difficult chapters of life and made clothes for us. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Today is April 2nd, 2017. Yesterday, for my family, had significance beyond being April Fool's Day. Um, Yay. It was a very good day for my children who actually pranked me in a really good way uh, uh, that we're not going to get into now. But... Also, for the Daniels, what yesterday represented was that it marked three years from the day that I started my job here at Covenant. My first day working here was April 1st, 2014, which has all sorts of layers of significance that it was April Fool's Day when I started my job here, right? But it was important for us to remember the significance of being here three years and for us as a family to spend some time thinking about how God has made clothes for us. Because we don't think about that very much. Like many of you, my family has worries. We have things we can't control. We have things we worry about for my two girls. We have things that we worry about of how it's going to impact our nation. We have things that we're worried about of what's going on in our world. We have anxieties. We have fears. We have nervousness about different things that we know are beyond our control. And sometimes there are moments when that can feel overwhelming. And so it's important for us on days like yesterday to stop and think and remember to remember that three years ago, we had a lot of anxieties about this move to Austin that we were, felt really called to do, but we were worried about, right? I was worried about people like Jerry Wise. What was it going to be like working with Jerry? What was it going to be like working with Derek? What was it going to be like working with Jill? Was she really as nice as she seemed on the phone? Or was that all a facade, right? Was I gonna, what, were you guys going to like me? Was I going to like you all? There were all of these different things that you don't know. We had to go back and remember that some of our chief worries and fears were about our kids moving out here and what changing cities and schools was going to do to them. Well, one of our chief prayers was who were they going to sit next to their first day of school? Now, at this point, three years ago, we didn't have a house, so we didn't know what school we were going to be in. That was also a worry, right? Where were we going to live? I mean, all of those things are fears and worries and concerns that now I don't think about anymore. Because, man, over the last three years, while things have not always been great every day, God has made some beautiful clothing for us. I can tell you that these last three years of ministry have been the most joyful that I have ever experienced in my life. And I am grateful for that. I am so grateful to be at this church and to be walking with you guys. It has been the most wonderful season of life for me and for Beth and for Miriam and Hannah. It's been wonderful. But we didn't know that three years ago. 
And there was all kinds of fear and all kinds of anxiety and all kinds of worry. How are we going to handle things as a church? What are we going to do about our debt situation? What are we going to do about all these different things that were going on? And guys, in God, through the last three years, God has sewn some beautiful garments for us to wear. And we've got to remember that because you know what? We've still got things we're facing. We've still got things we've got to figure out. We've still got places we've got to go. We still have things in my own life that I worry about. And when I don't remember how God made clothes for us like he did over the last three years, those things become overwhelming. I lose hope because life seems overwhelming. So this week I invite you to have good memories to think about your journey, to think about your life, to think about your story, not just the good moments, not just the best vacation ever moments, but to specifically think about the hard moments, the difficult moments, maybe some of which you are the author of, maybe some of which where life just happened. But go to those places, remember the stories, and specifically remember how God made clothes for you. Because when you remember, it allows us to live right now, today. Saying, I wonder what he's going to do next. And that is the faithful way to approach your life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask this day that you would remind us that you... So beautiful, beautiful garments for us to wear. Sometimes we don't deserve it, and you sew them anyway. Help us this day and this week, help us right now to reflect on our journeys, to reflect on those times and places that were scary or anxious or hard. Because all of us today have fear. All of us today have pain. All of us today know uncertainty. And for some of us, This is a moment when it can even feel overwhelming. May we have good memories for how, just like Adam and Eve, you sewed clothes together for us. And may it give us hope to stand and to stare clear-eyed at whatever today holds and whatever tomorrow will bring. May your hope live in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.